Nightmarica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we are doing, please consider supporting patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers. Welcome to Nightmarica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhood. Episode 48, Mysteries of Hawaii with Lopaka Kapanui. Ahoy, hoy, Nightmaricans! Your host, Aaron Sagers, here, journalist, paranormal pop culture expert, researcher of the weird, and currently seen on Travel Channel's Paranormal Caught on Camera. I'm super excited about the guest that we're bringing in because. So often, I typically bring in storytellers that I've had the fortune of knowing previously, I've been able to work with, but in this case, this is a gentleman that I have been tracking down, trying to get him in for an interview. He's a very busy man and really brings a different kind of perspective to the paranormal. And let me say, I am a white dude, and... A lot of the paranormal community, at least in the United States, really favors sort of the the white, Anglo-centric, Judeo-Christian approach to the paranormal. And that's just not right because it's a big, wide world out there. And we have so many different types of mysteries and folklore and paranormal phenomena out there. And something we do really well that I'm quite proud of is... On Paranormal Caught on Camera, we do talk about some of these stories, these folklores from other parts of the globe. So I wanted to make certain that I was incorporating that with the Nightmarica podcast as well. So it's a real treat. So Lopaka Kapanui is a native Hawaiian storyteller. He's an author. He's an actor. He is a cultural practitioner, a former professional wrestler, a husband, a father, and a grandfather and he is also known as the ghost guy and he makes a business of leading guests into some of the darkest spookiest places on the island of oahu and he is also the author of haunted hawaiian nights the legend of morgan's corner and another book mysteries of honolulu which is an e-book so Without further ado, let me bring this gentleman in. Lopaka, thank you so much for joining today. Aloha, good afternoon. Well, it's afternoon here in here in Honolulu. Yes, as we are recording this on the East Coast, it is the the sun has set, so you have a few hours of of sunshine left. And like I said, I've I've heard a lot of great things for you. We have a mutual friend in Ryan Sprague. Hey, Ryan. Yeah, yeah. and he you know he's he's a his focus is really on the aliens and the UFOs and he does the somewhere in the skies podcast and as much as i love that stuff i'd say it's more of the the ghosts and the creatures and the goblins and the crypto uh, cryptids that's sort of more my bag but he spoke so highly of you i knew that i had to have you on the nightmareca podcast and I, yeah, I want to learn a little bit about how you got into this world. And I understand 
It may have even involved a mentor by the name of Glenn Grant, who was, who was he, a, a chicken skin? Is that his nickname? What's the story there, Low Pocket? How did you get into this paranormal world? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I have to talk to my PR team and tell them to take out the professional wrestling thing in my bio. I don't think that's important. Is it not true? <laughs> it's absolutely true. There's There's a couple of videos out there, but... I think it's excellent. I, I think it's great because it adds so much more flavor and color and background, interesting background to you as a person and as an author. So I love it. I say leave it in, but you talk to your publicist about whether or not to take it out. But sorry, I digress. Continue. Well, you know, talking about Glenn Grant, uh, he was a professor of American history at the university here in um, Honolulu. He arrived here in like 1972. Uh, the invitation of his lifelong friend, uh, uh, Professor Dennis Ogawa, who's still around. And so Glenn officially started the first ghost tour in Hawaii in 1974. And so when I inherited that tour after he passed away, um, the tour started at 7 in the evening and sometimes wouldn't finish till like 2 in the morning. And back then, you know, nobody was doing ghost tours, so... He would start out with about five or six people, and by the end of the tour, there would be at least anywhere from 60 to 100 people. 7 to 2 a.m., you're saying? 7 in the evening to 2 a.m. in the morning. That is, those those guests, those attendees, were getting their money's worth in a day and age now where yeah. a ghost tour goes maybe two and a half hours. Absolutely. And so when I um, took over his, his, what he called his Ghost Hunters bus tour, uh, he was still around at the time, and he just wanted to, he was moving on to other stuff. And so that bus tour was from 7 to 2 in the morning. And there were seven stops on that tour, and every stop had had at least about two hours of ghost stories. And so the thing about uh, being trained by Glenn was that there was no script. Um, I had to listen to everything he said and then retain the information. And, and so, go, go on, please. No, no. And so it was, you know, uh, mouth to ear. What was straight, strange about that training is that's how I learned uh, the spiritually cultural stuff from my mom. You know, first first night I went to go learn from her, I literally sitting at her feet with pen and paper. And she looked at me, she says, what's that? I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to write notes down. She says, no, I talk, you listen. And then at the end of every night, you give everything back to me you know, the way you heard it, and you know. So, yeah, it's a very cultural thing. So that's two hours every, two hours of stories, seven stops, all memorized. <laughs> that is, that's a hell of a script to, to memorize. <laughs> yeah. it's, but with Glenn, did you, when you first met him, did you, need some encouragement you you grew up with this stuff however sometimes when you grow up with stories some you, you're okay relegating it to just stories some people saying yeah. like uh you know what I, I don't really need to pursue that as a job i certainly don't need to be sharing this with a bunch of tourists that are coming over did it require any kind of encouragement from glenn to say look this is this is part of you this is your upbringing you need to carry this this storytelling tradition on um I think it was 1992 or 93. 
I was working at a hotel in Waikiki and, you know, the word at the front desk was there's a ghost tour downtown hosted by this professor from the university. You know, he's not Hawaiian or local, but, you know, there's just something about him. So I went the following Wednesday and everything he said was basically everything I heard and learned growing up and just, you know, something struck me. And the following Wednesday, um, at that time I was uh, dancing hula for my cousin, and at that next hula practice, he said, oh, by the way, um, you know, from now on, every third Saturday of the month, our hula school is going to be part of this ghost tour out to the west side. And it's with a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Glenn Grant. And so that's how that kind of started. So my cousin hosted the, you know, the culturally Hawaiian part of the tour. And <clears throat> about two years later, my cousin called Glenn and said, you know, I have to go to work in Washington, D.C. I can't do the tour this Saturday. And Glenn is losing his mind. And he says, you know, I know my part of the tour. I don't know your part. And Glenn said, well, you know, Lopaka knows it. My cousin knows it. So don't worry about it. And so I filled in for my cousin Saturday night. Uh, Monday, Glenn called and said, hey, you, you were pretty good. You know, if I give you some more work, would you mind? I'm like, no, that's fine. And so it wasn't until... I started doing the tours and I remember it was, he was hosting a book signing for a friend of his at his old store. And we were talking in the corner. He said, so really, you know, after all these years, I finally realized, and he's saying this to me, that I was probably the person who had to get this thing kickstarted. But he said, really, you know, it's a Hawaiian person who's supposed to do this. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, that's good. <clears throat> and so before he announces, you know, the book, the book signing and all that. He says, well, and by the way, uh, this is Lopaka. You know, he's, he's my, uh, my protege. And I finally found a Hawaiian who can do these tours. And I'm look, this is, I'm honest. I swear in my mom, I'm looking around the store trying to figure out, well, who's, who's this Hawaiian guy that, you know, Glenn has trained. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's Lopaka Kapanui. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. So no pressure. <laughs> did you did you believe the stories? Did you believe in spirits or was were these just tales from your mother and your ancestors? Were were you a, a true true blue believer? I was and I still am because uh and again the very short story is when I was about six or seven, I had to go to the hospital to get my kidneys cleaned out. Uh, something bad happened where this kid snuck in a bottle of Coca-Cola. And back in the 70s, uh, Coca-Cola was, wasn't the way it was now. It was really stronger and not good for somebody who's got kidney problems. Right. And so, you know, we all took a swig of that. I ended up uh, having to go get surgery for something. And after coming out of surgery, I remember the, the doctor telling my parents that, you know, the surgery went okay, but we lost them for a minute. And so I remember my mom saying, what do you mean you lost him? And the doctor said he, you know, he died for almost a minute. But, you know, we got him back. And so it was after that that all this stuff started to happen. And so when my mother is talking to me about, you know, Hawaiian legends and mythology. That's one thing. But then to hear it being told by Glenn, who backs it up with, you know, uh, history and facts and documentation, you know, and relevant uh, references to, to parapsychology, you know, then everything starts to click. 
did you do you remember like precisely the kind of experience like what you saw like do you did did you see anything oh um all the time so you know i would see spirits who look just like you and me except they're you know a bit fuzzy around the edges and they would they would communicate but because i wasn't fully uh, aware yet of what was going on it kind of freaked me out you know, until I sat down with my, my mom, who explained everything. And she said, the reason you're having these experiences is because, you know, you're Hawaiian. It's part of your your DNA and, you know, your ancestors. And so she said, it's, it's not evil. You know, you're not going to go to hell. It's basically your ancestors communicating, except they're no longer flesh and blood. But they're still the same people. You know, over here or in the mainland or, or like sort of the, the culture I grew up in, I guess, there's typically sort of three settings. And I would say that this is sort of represented in the pop culture that we see out there. There's typically people that, okay, you're psychic slash medium, or maybe you're sensitive or you're closed off, or maybe you don't believe at all. But typically people that are said to be seeing things regularly, they are, they're, they're labeled sensitive or they're labeled a medium within the Hawaiian culture is this is everybody should everybody be open to this is this is are these kinds of experiences available to everyone or is it just a subset of like mediums or brujas or or whatever you know for hawaiian and local culture it's just it's an everyday thing you know everybody kind of knows about it uh some more more than others but uh for instance in some hawaiian families like uh, from South Kona on the Big Island, you know there are accounts where every generation one child is is observed, chosen, and taken aside because of what the elders see, and that child is trained to be the what they call the haka or the medium in the family. And so the haka is trained in what uh, what was known as uh, noho akua, which means you know the godly deity that sits on your shoulders. And so that that child has the family gods sit on their shoulders and communicate to the living through them. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to think about the islands as a monolithic culture, but that's really not the case. There are, there's, there's variations in beliefs from Island to Island. Correct. Is there any kind of major differences that you think people should probably know about? Like, the, you know what your the the types of ghost stories or the types of belief and phenomena this is different from this island to that island is there anything mm-hmm. that you can kind of illuminate yeah um like for instance the big island has its ghost stories about you know the ghost of uh, high-ranking chiefs and <clears throat> and also the goddess pele you know, which throughout the ages, there have been so many um, documented sightings of people who have seen her, encountered her, not knowing who she is. And then on Maui, they have uh, what they call the Mo'o deity. Or, you know, Mo'o is not really the right right word. Mo'o, loosely translated, means like a, a reptile or a lizard. Um, but really, according to uh, some of the documentation, it's actually a translucent being. But I think they attach the reptilian description to this 
this deity because it's mainly seen around uh, water. Okay. Uh, so the primary deity of Maui is Kiawaihine, uh, uh, who's uh, a Mo'o goddess. And then Oahu we have. And other islands have it too, but more prominently on Oahu we have, you know, the night marchers and the Merenghune. And, you know, the same thing for Kauai. So every island has, has its different beliefs in how they, how they view it, how they interact with it, and how they move in their daily lives, uh, being able to deal with these things that are going on spiritually, if that makes any sense. Well, it does. And before I get into the night marchers, let me ask, you know, obviously the ghost business, ghost tourism, ghost tours, it's a, it is a big deal. It's a big business. And also paranormal reality TV shows, those are quite popular these days. And I'm curious about your thoughts about what sort of the mainlanders get wrong about the paranormal as it relates to Hawaii or when people come over, tourists mm-hmm. from wherever, and they are fascinated by the paranormal, they're fascinated by the spirits of, of Hawaii. What are some of the things that they get wrong? What are some of the things that they could be doing better? And I'll add this one in there without necessarily naming names. What are some, some really some things that paranormal investigative groups have really just botched when they've come over to Hawaii saying we're going we're gonna to hunt some ghosts? Well, you know, it's the first thing. Um, I don't want to say self-proclaimed, but people who call me and say they're paranormal investigators want to come on the ghost tour. Can I bring my equipment? <clears throat> and, you know, I tell them it's okay as long as you don't get in the way, you know, and, you know, distract from what's going on. And what sort of surprises them is um, there's a part of the tour where I, I reference uh, paranormal groups and the kind of equipment they use. And basically what I'm saying uh, to the people on my tour is, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of equipment you have. When you're trying to take a picture of a ghost or a spirit, you know, what matters is who's, is who's actually taking the picture or recording the video. And that's because that person has probably some level of psychic ability and whatever is in the environment senses that and works through that person. That's this whole explanation about, you know, um, in the realm of parapsychology, how they say you can't take a picture of a ghost because it doesn't reflect light. And so by, by saying that, you know, I leave, I feel... I'm speaking only for myself. I feel that I leave that power in the hand of the person who's on the tour, if that makes any sense. You know, they sort of realize, wow, this is actually up to me. You know, if this happens or if that doesn't happen. It also, I think it's interesting because I, Mm -hmm. I kind of try to maintain the, there's, there's no rules to this sort Mm -hmm. of approach that we try to put this stuff, this phenomenon in a box. And yet, it's like, well, we don't entirely understand all of this. So who are we as flesh and blood to to assign rules to it? But it cracks me up when people are showing up to investigation or whatever with so much gadgets and things that light up and make noises. And I'm like, you're really just separating yourself, your your body, this most receptive device from the experience and you think that you're going to capture this evidence on this blinky device, but maybe the most significant experience is going to come from you just as a human, from your body tuning in. Is that, is that something that you get on board with? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things I say at the, be- the beginning of the tour. 
but you know, <clears throat> before I get into that, um, there have been people from you know the, the continent who come on the tour. I'm a paranormal investigator, and at the end of the tour, they said, "Hey, man, you know how was that? Was that was that some good science?" I'm like, "No, you're just using equipment. There's nothing scientific about it." <laughs> <laughs> um, at the beginning of the tour, I, I uh, just basically say, you know, whatever happens or doesn't happen on these things, in my experience, um, has nothing to do with me personally, but mostly to do with the kind of people who show up. Yeah. And so I, so I tell them, whatever happens tonight depends on you and where you're at in your mind, you know, your heart, your life. Um, I found through my own experience that sort of determine, determines what goes on and what, what doesn't go on. And that leads into people saying, well, what do you mean? What are you trying to say? And so that allows me to get on a deeper level with them. So by the time the tour starts, they're aware of, you know, what not to do, what to do, um, you know, how to act, how not to act. If that makes any sense. <laughs> well, what about this notion of, of offerings, which I imagine is probably comes from a good place, but... <clears throat> Is this is this something that you encourage or discourage when people come on your tours? Actually, I talk about it at the very last stop on the tour. Um, we stop at the, the Queen statue, which is behind the palace. And especially for visitors, I say, if you feel like, you know, you go to a sacred place and you feel the urge to leave an offering, I said, the best thing to leave is a biodegradable flower lay. It's probably the best thing you can do. You know, and it's it's good for the environment. It won't hurt the environment. And and then I tell them, but be food in whatever capacity. And that's because my mother told me that she she said, you know, the reason we don't have kii or what you call tiki and pray to them and make offerings to them anymore is because uh, she said when you do it, that's that's ho'omana. You're imbuing that image. You're giving it life. And so she says, and that's a, she said, jobs in ancient times were not nine to five. That was your job all the time, you know, and that was a job that was passed down in, in the family. So she said, if, if it's your job to feed the ki'i, to, to pray to it, you know, to imbue it, she says, the one time you, you forget to go and you don't do anything, no offerings, no prayers, the life that you put into that thing will notice that, and then it will come forward and take something out of you. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It it calls to mind the idea of uh, what what I think of as the theory of acknowledgement, or yes, empowering something that it could be it could be a doll. We see a lot of these things that are called haunted dolls that are being sold out on the internet, and while I don't necessarily think. They're all haunted. If people start focusing on this thing enough as a object that is either a force of good or evil or whatever, has some sort of energy to it, some sort of spirit attached to it. I think if given enough time, you might essentially be, you might be imbuing it with that, yeah. that energy. Especially if it's an image that requires human sacrifice, you know, on top of all the other things you're imbuing into it, that's, yeah, that's some serious business. Yeah. Are you noticing within, uh, with Hawaii, with so many tourists, so much, yes, relatively recent and brief history of 
people from the continent coming over there. Are they, are you noticing the impact of like sort of this westernized ghost that's emerging and and showing up on the island? If if that makes sense, like, do you have white ghosts? Oh yeah, we do, of course. Um, you know, because there's so many cultures that are here. Um, you know, there are ghosts of missionaries who help you know uh, build schools. You know, not only for for their their children, but you know, for Hawaiian children as well. Uh, there's the ghost of Hiram Bingham who built the oldest church in downtown Honolulu. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, the ghost of uh, Mrs. Fern, who ran a girls' dormitory at the university and, you know, took care of, of all the girls, you know, not just one class, but, you know, every kind of girl there was. And even after she died, people witnessed her ghost haunting the old fair hall. And about 12 years ago, when they were going to break it down and build a new dormitory, uh, the university asked me to go, go bless the building. And I said, but you're already tearing it down. It doesn't make sense. And they said, well, we want to make sure that Miss, Mrs. Freer knows that, you know, we're not breaking the building down to, to spite her or anything like that. We want sort of her approval for the new project. And I said, well, then go ask her, mm-hmm. you know, just, just that. Oh, but, you know, don't we need a ceremony or all this? I'm like, no. And so just, just go in there. You know, she haunts the place and saying, you know, Mrs. Freer, here's what's happening. This is why we have to do it. And, you know, we would like your blessings. But uh, what was kind of weird about walking through the old dormitory is um, a lot of the rooms, and I, they forgot, conveniently forgot to tell me this, a lot of the rooms, the, the students had uh, graffiti Ouija boards on the floor and pentagrams on the ceilings, like in most of the dormitories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just nonchalantly, the staff says, oh, yeah, that's these crazy, crazy hippie college kids you know, getting into the occult and like, so were they actively doing this? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but it's nothing. I'm like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I like the, your comments that just go ask her. I think so often people get wrapped up in this idea of the ghost in the, the, the boo without thinking about a human on the other side of that. And a person who has their own, their own history, their own experience, their own life before, we knew before we started thinking of that person as a ghost, they had an entire life and personality. We, we so often divorce those two things. So I like your idea of, well, yeah, just go, just go ask her. I mean, yeah, maybe you're thinking of her as a ghost, but she, she still is a person was a person on this, on this uh, plane of existence at one point. But I I even remember as a kid, uh, we were traveling from one part of the Big Island to the other. And I remember my father had a couple of drinks before we drove. And so I remember him saying, I got to go. And he pulled over to the side of the road. This is in the middle of uh, what is now Volcanoes National Park. They're just open fields of, you know, uh, dried lava. And I remember hearing him say, you know, um, elders, I apologize. I had a bit too much to drink and I, I have to go, you know, and I, I mean no disrespect, <laughs> you know? And he said, if, if I'm not supposed to, then, you know, I'll go somewhere else. But he said, but I really have to go. And I remember being definitely quiet and, you know, we could hear him doing his business. And as soon as he got back in the car and we drove off, this wind just swept right through the place. 
you know, so that, that really, really uh, made an impression in me about asking permission of not only your elders who are the living, but the elders who are, you know, unseen. Yeah. It's, it's still the same communication. And, and also, yeah. Uh, well, don't drink and drive, but also don't, <laughs> don't, don't piss in the wind, I guess, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well okay so before we get into the story about the night marches i'm very excited to hear this but i do this little thing called choose your news where i'm going to throw two headlines at you and related to the paranormal and you tell me which one you want to hear about okay you ready for this nightmare is brought to you by the smell of fear candle co I love the way a candle can change the entire vibe and character of a room and smell of fear brings a lot of literary and film characters to a room. These scents are inspired by characters and settings from stories and history. For example, there is the Telltale Heart Candle from the Essence of Poe collection, and that smells like the infamous oak floorboards with just a hint of tobacco that I imagine the crazed narrator of that story was frantically smoking. I also dig the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat Candle from the Cinematic Sense Collection. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, and this candle, it puts me right in the action. It smells like salty sea air with the wood of an old fishing boat and just a hint of whiskey that Quint was most certainly knocking back. In fact, I was just burning the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat Candle last night as I was reading a book, and it really just set the scene for me. Okay, I'm a paranormal a researcher and journalist, and I have to I have to say that I love the Sasquatch candle, obviously, from the Cryptid collection. No, it, it does not smell like that stinky beast we all love, but instead it is inspired by the heavily forested areas in the Northwest that Bigfoot is said to roam, with hints of redwoods, cedar, pine, and earth. Other collections include the literary redolence or televised temptations. There is also the whiff of King. Think of Stephen King. So with more than 80 candles and counting, Smell of Fear Candle Co. has you covered, and they have new candles released monthly. For instance, there is the Beware the Crimson Peak. That is a new scent that smells like earthy red clay. And I love the TV show, What We Do in the Shadows, and that theme song, You're Dead, it gets stuck in my brain all the time. So there is the You're Dead candle, which is an homage to What We Do in the Shadows, and it smells like red currant, and there is also the Spellman candle from Inspired by the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and that has a classic dragon's blood scent. So these candles are a coconut soy blend with no paraffin, so they are eco-friendly. They're organic, renewable, sustainable, minimal environmental impact. They're also clean burning, and there is almost zero soot in comparison to other types of wax candles. I also like the fact that they are slow burning, and they have this fantastic scent throw. It fills an entire room, and it's nice that they're not made with nasty chemicals. So these candles are available in several shapes and sizes, as well as in different wax melts. Plus, Smell of Fear Candle Co. donates a portion of profit to various nonprofit organizations monthly. Past donations have gone to 
COVID relief funds, and pet rescue organizations. And that's, that's just really nice. I like supporting a company that supports others. Finally, with the code NIGHTMERICA, you can get 15% off your order at thesmelloffear.com. Again, code NIGHTMERICA for 15% off. So check them out, Smell of Fear Candle Co. They make good sense. Choose your news. First headline, Cleveland Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield and wife Emily report possible UFO sightings in Texas. That's, that's one headline. Other headline, Oklahoma places $2.1 million bounty on Bigfoot's head. Which do you want to hear more about? Oh, Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Okay. This is Dateline March 9th out of NPR. And the tourism officials in Oklahoma, hoping this generates some buzz, says Bigfoot needs to be captured, although they say unarmed, stressing bounty hunters cannot break any laws during the hunt. According to Scott Detrow, who was the host reading this, you could try the lottery. If you want to make $2 million, you could invest in Bitcoin or head to Oklahoma because this $2.1 million bounty for Bigfoot, it includes rules that, again, that he has to be unharmed, but you can go out there and capture Bigfoot. I think I, I, I want to get your take on this, but I'm thinking when you say bounty to capture Bigfoot, People don't automatically go to the unharmed part. Right. Right. <laughs> They're going towards the, you know, let's just go shoot us a Bigfoot, shoot us a, a Sasquatch. Do you think Bigfoot's out there? Oh, definitely. Definitely. But I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to take Bigfoot, Bigfoot out with just one bullet. <laughs> I think Bigfoot would take you out, take us out. You know, I think you start shooting at Bigfoot, you're just going to tick him off. Yeah. And then he's going to come for you. Or maybe Bigfoot is, you know, there's the theory that Bigfoot is actually an interdimensional being or a specter, a, a spirit himself. You know, it could be all of those things. But when you think about it, a lot of hunters, uh, I don't think they realize that the territory they're in looking for Bigfoot, he's probably like less than a few feet away from them without them realizing it. Yeah, there is that hubris. I was just speaking to a primatologist about this, this idea of, well, we would we would see him, we would find him, how could he hide? Well, it's, you know, half the time you're wandering around, going on a hike or whatever. I know there's bear out there. I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily see them. I may not hear them. I know they're there, though, because we accept that bears exist, you know? But this notion of, Oh, of course we would see him. If something is is used to that habitat and smart enough, then they know how to avoid being detected. Absolutely. So it's it's like this uh, investigation about a friend of mine on an investigation like a few years ago. And we left the place and he said, oh, I thought you said the place was haunted and it was active. You know, and I thought you said the the neighborhood has, has a history of hauntings. They said it does. He said, well, you know, nothing happened tonight. I said, it doesn't mean the ghosts are not there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably not interested in you. <laughs> cracks me cracks me up when people say, well, this place isn't haunted. And I'm like, 
because you didn't get the survey from the ghost saying check haunted like it's yeah it's, the ghost the ghost may not be known for filling out a census you know they uh, <laughs> <laughs> just they may be there and just not feeling like talking to you so right. okay Lepaka, let us get to the story you are going to tell us about the night marchers oh yeah so the common night marcher procession are ghosts of long dead warriors who proceed on the last four moon phases of the Hawaiian lunar calendar as the moon is going dark. And this is a procession that in life preceded a, a, a high chief that was so sacred and so high ranking that in their presence, you could not be clothed. You would actually have to strip naked, lie face down, hands behind the back of your head, and you couldn't look. If the sun cast their shadow on your body, you'd be killed. These high-ranking chiefs were so sacred that their number one and number two had to be put in a bowl and either burned in a secret location or sailed way out to the horizon and dumped in the ocean. And so a lot of these sacred chiefs were very merciful to the common people, so they'd only come out at night to spare the common people. And the common people knew they were coming because they could see the long line of torchlights, they could hear the drums and the conchas. And so those were all the signs to not be there when this procession is approaching. And so it's the same thing now. They're still doing the same thing they did in life. And so these processions always go from mountain to ocean. And it doesn't matter how the lay of the land has changed, the path is still the path. And so the story comes from the island of Molokai. There's a couple who moves here from, from the mainland. And they moved to Molokai because it's a lot more uh, rural. It's, you know, a lot more quiet, not so much fast pace. And their little son is in the bedroom down the hallway. And shortly after they move in, they notice that he's, he's talking a lot to something that's not there in his room. So they figure, you know, imaginary friend, they don't bother him about it, but it continues to the point where the Parents are sort of getting worried. And so one day they ask him, um, you know, who are you talking to? He, and the boy says, the man. What man? The man. I play with him all the time. He's in the corner of my room. Okay. And so they think nothing about it. But one night they wake up and they hear him talking. And he's sitting on the floor facing the corner. And talking to something that's not there. And, you know, going like this and doing these hand motions and giggling. And so without scaring the boy... They basically move his bed to the corner where he talks to his imaginary friend and then put another bed in the other corner where the boy sleeps and sort of just sections off that corner with that, that bed and all these toys. And so about a month later, the parents say they're up late just listening to the radio and they hear the boy get out of bed. They hear his feet creaking along the floor coming out of the room. And so when they look like this and look down the hallway, they notice he's walking out of his room toward the back door with his hand like that. And he's And so they turn him around and guide him back into his room. And the next night around the same time, the same thing. Boy comes walking out of the room like this, walking down the hallway. And raised. Hand like this. Hanging in the air. like Toward the like, back door. Like something is holding his hand almost? Well, they're not sure what's going on. 
But by the third time it happens, they're kind of freaked out. So they ask around and a kahuna comes to talk to them. And so they tell the kahuna what's going on. And kahuna kind of looks around like this, looks up at the mountain, looks toward the ocean, looks around like this. He says, can I go in your house? And they're like, sure. He walks in the house. He comes back out. He says, there are night marchers coming through your house. They come from up here at Ho'olehua. Your house is in the way of the procession. And then they're going down to the ocean over there. And so the parents ask, well, what about this man that our son is playing with? He said, well, there's a Hawaiian man buried underneath your son's room, specifically in that corner. That Hawaiian man loves your son, became his friend. That Hawaiian man was trying to protect your son, but since you moved everything in that corner and put your son on the opposite end of the room, he couldn't protect him. So as the night marchers are coming through your house, they're going through your son's room and they're taking him with them. It's a good thing you called me because tonight is the last moon of that procession and they would have taken and you would have never seen your son again which is why they saw him like this and so that's the thing about uh, the night marcher procession if you're Hawaiian and you know how to do your genealogy chant and you observe the protocol nothing will happen to you because you're doing your genealogy chant to identify yourself in case you're an ancestor uh, a descendant I'm sorry the other thing is you do number one on your hand, rub it all over your body, so they'll find you disgusting. But if you don't have any Hawaiian ties, you're not even Hawaiian, uh, the local belief is the night marchers have to take one person. And so in this household of three people, guess who is the one that they're going to take? <laughs> is that one person from each household that that they mm-hmm. will take? Well, you know, if... We're a bunch of people from, you know, Idaho and first time in Hawaii and we encounter a night marchers trail and we don't know what to do. And, you know, something we can see physically forces us down to the ground uh, when we wake up or when we come out of it and the procession is left. One of us will be missing. Hmm. So in this instance, did the family, did the parents move the boy's bed back to where it was? Absolutely. Seems like a smart move. <laughs> did, <laughs> did he continue to, to have this invisible friend that was that had been buried underneath the house? Well, this family actually met with my late boss, Glenn Grant, and this is their story to him. And they, they told him, you know, uh, the son talked to the invisible friend until he was about 10 or 11. And then after that, it stopped. And so at that point, when... Uh, I think the boy was already like in his early twenties and they introduced him to my boss and, you know, he, Glenn asked the boy about it and he has no recollection of it. In this instance with the night marchers, when they take you, where do you go? You join the procession. So you become one of their one of these spirits even though you're not a warrior you become one of their so when people typically speak about the night marchers is it viewing them as 
quote unquote evil entities. I mean, that's such an umbrella word. <laughs> it can mean, you know, so much, but like view them as evil because these are, these were these sacred warriors and these, these, they were viewed upon with respect. Correct. So are, are they viewed as evil now? No. You know, they're always referred to with, you know, reverence and awe. And the second you mention night marchers, you know, mostly everybody goes, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, you know, you yeah, can't mess with that. Yeah. Have yeah. you personally had any kind of experience or run-in with with something that could be a night, night marcher? Yeah, it was um, 2001, and I was doing a ghost tour for an architect firm. And so that ghost tour was put together by their boss. It was kind of like a team building exercise. And I remember there were 38 people and it took 15 minutes to convince them to get on the bus for the ghost tour. Cause I didn't know the building they were working in in downtown Honolulu is, is still haunted. And so our first stop is a, a Chinese cemetery uh, near the university. And so it took a few minutes to convince them. The only way the ghost tour works is if we walk through the cemetery. Yeah. And so we get to the top of uh, the children's section, and all the kids there are, are no older than eight. They're all buried together. Uh, a lot of them died from smallpox. And they turn around and, and start talking to these people about what haunts the cemetery. And I remember this, this wind ripped right through the cemetery. All the, um, the tall pine trees, the coconut trees were like bending one way. And while this is going on, you know, I can see what's happening, but I can't feel it. And I can't hear it, but I feel uh, encapsulated. And I sort of noticed that the people on the tour are now running back to the bus. And then it's over. And that was pretty much it for the tour. They didn't want to go any further. But the next day, I called my cousin. And I told him what happened. And he said, oh, yeah, there's a night marcher's trail that goes through that section of the, the Chinese cemetery. And I asked him, I said, well, why wasn't I killed? Because it happened so suddenly. And, you know, I didn't. I didn't see all the signs. I didn't hear the, the chanting or, you know, see the torches or anything like that. You said that sensation you're talking about, of, about seeing the wind, but not feeling it and feeling like, you know, you're encapsulated. He said, those have to be ancestors who are in that procession of yours who recognized you and surrounded you while the rest of the procession passed. And then before he hung up, he said, did you, do you remember hearing any names whispered? And I said, I heard a name, but I wasn't sure because of, you know, um, all the things that were happening simultaneously. And he asked me, what's the name? I said, uh, it sounded like Kauhinuiakama. And I hear pages flipping. He said, yeah, that's, that's an ancestor of ours, yours and mine, but more on my side. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it took a while for me to want to continue doing ghost tours to that Chinese cemetery after that. But, you know, um, after more research, uh, what my cousin said is correct. It actually goes through that Chinese cemetery and goes through these lava tubes underneath this uh, school for boys, uh, one ridge over, and then shows up in Waikiki. But, hey, that's great because that means if you've got an ancestor in, the, in that, in that might, night marcher trail, that means you're you're covered, right? You're you're pretty safe. You're pretty safe. Um, I think I was one of the few lucky ones because normally when that happens, and you're not aware you have heritage in that procession, many people 
have felt like a hand or something just physically grab them and force them like face first, you know, into the dirt and just sort of like just holds them there. You have an older brother? Do I? Yeah, I have three older brothers and an older sister. Right. Did your older brothers ever beat you up? Like brush you uh, up? I was youngest, but yeah, there was scraps, but for the most part, I was viewed upon as the baby of the family. <laughs> My brothers, um, I'll say right now, every uh, disciplinary action that was taken against me as a kid, I deserved it because I was really rotten. But my brothers would do this thing where collectively the three of them would hold my face, like shove it into the dirt with one yeah. hand. And with the other hand, they're giving me Charlie horses. And so according to the description of a lot of these Hawaiian elders, that that's what that's what it felt like. You know, something holding them back here, mm -hmm. but other hands just holding their head and just forcing them into the ground when the rest of this procession passes. And if someone were to encounter a night marcher, I mean, uh, you know, a, a mortal, <laughs> someone like me, if I was just going about my business in Hawaii and I suddenly get caught up in this, is there this is so often, okay, let me, let me connect it as far as I was raised Catholic. And one of the things that I was taught is if you feel like you're in the presence of evil, you might say something like, "In the name of Jesus Christ, I cast you out," or "I, I, or I, um, I, some incantation to protect yourself from a potential evil." Now, that is obviously a very kind of black and white approach to good and evil. But is there anything you can do to say, like, "Leave me be. I'm, I mean you no harm. I'm just trying to go on my ghost tour <laughs> through a Chinese cemetery." Anything you can say. Um, you can strip naked, do number one in your hand, rub it all over yourself and just lay face down. Or you could call me. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I might go for the giving you a phone call as opposed to peeing in my hand and, um, and, and using that as a protection, especially because I don't think it would make other people want to be around me on the rest of the tour that, that yeah. particular night. <laughs> but that's the purpose of it. You want to, the night marchers to think you're disgusting and they'll just leave you alone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, before I let you go, I was wondering if I could talk briefly about this notion of Tiki. Hmm. And so I am a fan of the cocktail culture that's been called tiki. And of course, tiki, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, there are the tiki gods of Ku, Lono, Kane, and Kanaloa, I believe. Oh, very and, good. And... So those are, you know, the tiki is a physical representation of those gods. And then there's this idea of the tiki culture after that, that took root in California. And then also, uh, you know, we have the Mai Tai and whatnot and people decorating bars with driftwood and their own renditions of tiki sculpts. What is your take on this? Is this tiki culture, do you find it? offensive and and frankly is it sacrilegious to to your faith <clears throat> sorry um you know the word tiki is actually a 
the Tahitian word. So in Hawaiian, it's pronounced uh, ki'i. Ki'i. Yeah. I see, and I sort of understand that, the, you know, uh, that whole tiki culture, you know, from the 50s and 60s. Uh, I forget the name of the, the local musician who, you know, released a lot of uh, Hawaiian music based on the tiki culture. So I get that, you know. Don Ho? No, it's it's another guy. It was a Caucasian gentleman. But he came here and acclimated really well. Okay. Uh, you know, the whole Scooby-Doo thing. And I remember, I don't know if it was Saturday Night Live in the 70s or some of the sketch show where the guy would go and talk, you know, to the tiki god. Well, and, and even a, yeah. the Brady Bunch had their cursed tiki episode. Right. Oh, yeah, that was funny. And so, um, so I understand, you know, that culture and, you know, how it works. But for, for us, uh, images like that were basically, you know, used to pray to and appease the gods in, in temples. And every god, Kukane Kanaloa, and Lono had times during certain seasons where their images were prevalent. And all different images were made from different types of wood, you know, according to um, the god itself. And so for us, you know, that's sort of still revered. I remember when I was a stupid teenager and I showed up in front of my mom with one of those, um, those plastic black uh, tiki images with, you know, the with the bluestone eyes and stuff like that. And she, yeah. she lost her, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that was probably two of two or three of the best uh, ass whoopings I ever got from my mom. <laughs> what was this? And I, I think I know the kind of thing you're talking about, especially because yeah. you can find it at any dollar store or party central. And they're typically the, the, the crappy plastic representations of it. But was yours actually a representation of Kulono Kane Kanaloa, or was it a generic representation of a just a, a a carving that we would call tiki yeah. or whatever? I just saw it on the shelf at an ABC store in Waikiki. Yeah, and thought it was cool and got it, and didn't think anything about it when I got home. And my mom saw it and just you know all, all broke loose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's 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 something but something i'm i try to navigate because i am fascinated with the culture and i'm fa- and i and i'm fascinated with the cocktails and enjoy the cocktails but and it is this part of like it's this this line of can you enjoy it without totally appropriating a culture that you're not a part of and mm-hmm. and is the way to do that without actually like i personally would never have a, a one of I would not have a representation of God of fertility or God of war or peace of light and life hanging on my wall or in my home because that's very religious and significant and but something that's inspired by that it's it's an interesting line and it's like is there a way to celebrate it without being totally offensive or offensive at all? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we as Hawaiian people know, you know, the value and the, the sanctity of, of the key, you know, which is how I explained earlier, you know, uh, why my mom told me we don't, we don't do that. 
because you know because of those reasons yeah but people people are going to do these things you know no matter what but there will always be that percent of us who understand it revere it respect it um <clears throat> i want to remember this person's name but I, it's not coming to me but he's um He's since moved back to New York. Um, oh, Ted Lerner. So he was my first uh, Jewish friend. And I remember, um, and this is in my, my wrestling days, I was explaining to a wrestler who came here to do a show. He's from Seattle about, you know, Tiki and Kii. And he wasn't getting it. And that wrestler also happened to be Jewish. And so Ted said to the wrestler, it's sort of like me going to your, uh, your temple and wearing your Torah as you know, as a piece of jewelry around my neck. Mm -hmm. He said, do you understand? The guy said, oh, well, you know, we would absolutely not do that. And Ted said, well, it's the same thing, you know, here in Hawaii. You absolutely don't wear an image that was used for human sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now, that, and that is certainly, you know, it's, that is certainly a, an apt comparison. Mm -hmm. Before... I let you go, let me ask, because I love talking about the notion of paranormal pop culture and how belief and theories in the paranormal are represented in movies and TV shows and whatnot. And we were just talking about Scooby-Doo and the Brady Bunch. Definitely not an accurate representation of Hawaii paranormal. But are there any kind of movies out there, any TV shows, anything that you've seen fictional representations that you're like okay someone did their research and they kind of get it they kind of get what it means to explore the spirit realm in hawaii anything you've seen in in pop culture no <laughs> <laughs> not yet not yet well, I, get, I get approached by paranormal shows all the time to do a reality show and you know every time they pitch it it's always something outlandish yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's there's this very kind of formula to doing yeah. a investigative show now. Uh, how would you do it differently? Well, you know, they want it done in Hawaii. So I remember um, one studio wanted to do Naked Paranormal in Hawaii. I'm like, uh, it's not going to work. And so my thing is, if you just if you leave out the whole paranormal formula. Mm -hmm. of the team going in and yelling and provoking and daring and have a, a genuine paranormal team from Hawaii who not only approaches their investigation, you know, from a paranormal sense, but from a spiritual sense as well, you know, so you can see how spiritual spirituality works in Hawaii and how it sort of blends with, you know, them eventually having to use thermal heat meters and all that stuff. You know, I think that would make a lot more sense. And they always say, well, no one's going to believe, you know, that part or understand. I said, well, people are already getting tired of the same formula on a different paranormal show, but it's still the same thing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I would agree with that. And, yeah. well, hopefully the world will be able to return to safely traveling soon. And... When they do, what is a way, when they come over to Hawaii, what is a way that they can find you to take your tour? Or even 
outside of traveling there physically, how can people find you and keep up with all the incredible things that you are doing? Uh, mainly by our website, uh, mysteriesofhawaii.com. Uh, same thing for the YouTube and Instagram channel. Our Facebook fan page is Mysteries of Honolulu. And so that's mainly where you'll, you'll find all the cool things that we do. Um, we're always changing. We're always evolving. So we never get stuck in the same uh, the same trope for more than six months. And, um, yeah, just call us or shoot us an email uh, or a message like how you did. Sorry it took so long, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, gr- I'm so grateful for your time. And I can't wait to meet you in person and and go on a tour with you and just really check out how your approach to a, a paradise and to a spirit realm that is is so interesting to me. So, uh, Lopaka Kapanui, I really appreciate your time and I look forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Uh, you know, let's do this again. <laughs> Most certainly. Thanks for listening. Please consider giving Nightmarica a review on Apple Podcast. It really helps raise awareness and boost the show's rankings. Also, give me a follow on social media, at Nightmarica on Instagram and Facebook, and at Aaron Sagers on Instagram and Twitter. And share Nightmarica with your friends. If you are able, I'd appreciate your support on patreon.com forward slash Aaron Sagers, where I also create tiki recipes, hold live streams, and share exclusive content. Don't miss new episodes of Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery+. Plus. If you'd like to share your own paranormal stories or get paranormal advice for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com. <laughs>